0: The following message is brought to you by Sovereign Grace Church. We're honored that you're taking the time to stream this sermon. It's our hope that you are receiving this sermon as a supplement to your active participation in a local body of believers where pastors who know you and love you faithfully preach for your benefit every week. If you are not a member of a local church, then we'd encourage you to find a local church today. For more information about Sovereign Grace Church or other churches in our denomination, please visit Well this last week while preparing for this sermon i got to be honest i had really I had a difficult time creating an outline that's usually what i do i create an outline then i write up a manuscript and i can't remember the last time i had such difficulty in writing a sermon Frankly, I was frustrated. I'm like, what is going on? This said, I never felt compelled to preach from a different psalm. Perhaps a psalm with a bit more continuity throughout. I, I, I felt and still feel like Psalm 16 has something to say to us this morning. Right here, right now. It's my sense, and I think this was confirmed from that microphone earlier. It's my sense that God wants to use this psalm to strengthen weary Christians, to give hope to those in the midst of trials, or to awaken Christians from mundane and complacent Christianity, and by the way, I can place myself in all three of those categories at different parts of my Christian walk. I think God wants to reassure all of God's people about the grace found in Jesus Christ. Today's psalm lays out one beautiful truth after another that leads us to the place where we find joy in the presence of God and eternal pleasures. Therefore, it is my hope this morning, no matter the reason you came to church this morning, that you will leave this place changed because of Psalm 16. So I offer no introductory story. I give you no example. Uh, I don't even have a discernible theme or propositional statement which is entirely frustrating for me, anyways. Hopefully not for you. (laughs) Uh, And you know what? That's all okay. I really do. This morning, I want to, what I offer you, what God's Word offers you is one profound truth after another about God. It offers you a string of priceless pearls that are truths about God. And if And if these truths about God take hold of your mind and your heart, and indeed your entire being, then you will find strength in God to overcome your weariness, to give you hope in the midst of trouble, and to help you break out of complacent Christianity. Indeed, you will find yourself in your heart right here bursting with joy and pleasures forevermore. So that's where I'm headed up the mountain. of of Psalm 16 to verse 11. Before reading Psalm 16, it's helpful to note that we are not sure why David, the author, penned this particular psalm. In other psalms, we know. We have some historical background, but we don't have it here. It does seem, from the content of Psalm 16, that David wrote out of a personal trial or struggle. We'll see that in verse 1. We just don't know the details of that. Essentially, we, we are going to see David preaching one truth to himself after another in order to strengthen his inner being with what he knows about God. And so, beginning in verse 1 through verse 11, imagine David making his way up this mountain of truth. And as we will read, he begins with a plea, but ends confessing Longing and declaring the truth of where he finds his ultimate source of joy and pleasure. So I invite you to read with me Psalm 16. Let's read our way up the mountain all the way up to the glorious peak that is verse 11. So Psalm 16, verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offering of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips, the Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, my flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand pleasures forevermore. What a bunch of glorious truths in Psalm 16. Like I already said, I don't have anything profound to say. I think... This psalm has all the profundity we need. This said, I I want to create two categories to help us think out of, um, help us to kind of place on top of the text. So here are two categories you can be thinking of as we go through verses 1 to 11 so we can extract and apply truth to our life. First, we read truth about God for our present Right here and right now. That's going to be the first category. The second category is truth about God for our future. How do we think about what's ahead? Again, these categories are not profound, but the truths within these categories are immensely profound. And if these truths are implanted in our mind and take root in our heart, verse 11 becomes the most precious promise for our life. It is the top of Mount Everest. So let's move up the mountain of truth beginning in Verse 1, a truth about God for our present. After a plea to be preserved by God, David immediately declares that God is his refuge. When I, when I think about God, when I think about declaring God as my refuge, my mind immediately goes to something like safety. And most commentators agree that safety is part of the idea of Refuge. If God is my refuge, then I know I am safe. It's kind of like being in a bunker during a war. If you're in the bunker, you will be safe. At least that's the idea. This idea of safety is helpful, but I think there's more to God being your refuge. When David says that God is his refuge, he implies that it is the presence of God that his soul finds safety in. David is beginning this psalm right where he is going to end. At the base of the mountain, David longs for the presence of God in the midst of trials and struggles. At the mountain peak, he desires nothing different. He doesn't want you just know truth about God, but he wants God Himself. God is his refuge. If I'm going to apply this to my life, if you're going to apply this to your life, just this first verse, the question can simply be stated. Do you find refuge in God or something or someone else? I ask myself that question. Especially when you're going through a difficult season, when we're calling out to God. God. Because this is what every living person knows about life. You will find hardship and struggles, or hardship and struggles will find you. So the question is when trials come, when pressure mounts, what or who will be your refuge? To what will you turn to? The world offers you a bunch of options, those options fail. It was the kindness of God to David and God's kindness to us that he offers himself as our refuge. What a magnificent truth that is also a constant reality to make our way up to Psalm 16, verse 11. So like I prayed earlier, I don't know what people came in to this auditorium with. My guess is many of you have been calling out to God, or some of you have been distracted and calling out to something else. And right here in verse one, God is your refuge. Here's a second truth about God for our present life. I find verse two to be a bold yet true statement. Think of this King David, the great King David, confesses that he has nothing good apart from God. This is not the only statement about how he views, this is not only a statement about how he views everything he has, the great King David having money, material possessions, armies, etc., but it's a truth claim about the nature of God. God is good. Jesus said something similar to a rich ruler who approached him with a question. Here's one snippet of that dialogue from the Gospel of Luke. And a ruler asked him, asked Jesus, good teacher, Jesus, I got a question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God. Jesus isn't ignoring the issue here. He's trying to get to the root of the issue. Jesus isn't dismissing his deity, but he is telling the rich ruler that no matter the power you accumulate, no matter the size of your bank account, regardless of the car you roll into the synagogue with, none of it has inherent good. Only God is good. Just think about how that truth can change your perspective. We, we tend to attribute goodness to people or items that we receive joy and pleasure from. I'm now thinking a bit ahead at verse 11. Where do you receive your joy and pleasure from? You know, I, I've said to myself, that was a really good steak. Like I'm a carnivore to the heart. Uh, my stepfather in law can grill a really good steak, it brings me pleasure. Um, and I've said before, that's a really good movie. These statements are innocent and innocuous. And I would add that God gives good gifts, gives good things for us to enjoy. But what David is admitting, and what 21st century Christians need to realize, is nothing good that you have is outside of God's pleasure for you, which makes him the ultimate good. There's no goodness of God, there's no goodness. That can be parallel to what God has for you, no trinket or toy that you receive. So yes, thank you God for the good gifts that you give your children, Matthew 7:11. But may we never forget where these good gifts come from? Because apart from God, there is nothing good about them. What a profound truth. As we think ahead to verse 11. Verse two is getting us to see where do we find our pleasure and joy? What tempts us to find all of our pleasure and joy in this when we have that God himself? Now a third truth about God for our present is found verses three and four. Let me reread these verses. As for the saints in the land, They are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight, David says. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply their drink offering of blood. I will not pour out or take their names in my lips. So on our way up the mountain, verses 3 and 4 shows the importance of being in the presence of fellow followers of God. Verse 3. The ESV translation calls them Saints. And more literally, these saints are called in the Hebrew, holy ones. In verse 4, we read the contrast to verse 3. So in verse 4, we read that the way up the mountain is not found in, let's say, other religions. David is so assured that he doesn't even put the names of these other gods on his lips. Yeah, I would say for our 21st century audience, it's also worth saying that the path to the source of joy and pleasure is not found within yourself. This inclusion of delighting in the saints, verse 3, is an acknowledgement that our pursuit of going up the mount means being around others who are in that same pursuit of truth and the presence of God. At first, this might seem like an odd and out-of-place statement, but it begins to make sense when we consider the alternative So for example, think about what life is like when you are or are not around people who love Jesus. So that's not an anti-evangelism statement by any means. If you've heard me preach before, you know that I always say that Christians are on mission to reach others with the gospel. But God wants us to see the value of being around other saints. David's world and our world are not much different. All around us are other people who are proclaiming other gods or different ideas, Idolatry, verse 4, runs rampant and attempts to redirect our focus and redirect our path away from the one true and living God. And so a way to combat that is for Christians to lock arms with other Christians. Therefore, there is a high value to be with those who likewise delight in God. John Piper puts it this way. He preached on this psalm two years ago. And I almost didn't preach it because that was so good. <laughs> but he, he made this statement in there and it was wonderful. Regarding verse three and four, Dr. Piper says, David underlines and emphasizes God's supreme value to him by what he says about God's people. When it comes to people, he says, the one who gives him pleasure are godly people, all his delight, his joy, his pleasure. He doesn't mean that he has delight in God's people instead of God or above God. He means that godless people don't give him delight in their godless ways. Only God, only the godly do. What delights him about people is how they treasure God and exalt God. This is the sweetness of their relationships. So we can't miss the point because it makes this moment, Sunday morning, and what it and what we do as a church family, Monday to Saturday, all the more significant. Listen, the point of verse 3 and 4 isn't to create a man-centered theology. It's all about us. No, God designed us for relationships, and God created the church as the gathering point for his people. The church is also the place where we can experience the presence of God together. It's, the, it's where we delight in God together. Even at the end of this sermon, we're going to sing a response song. Even that is an opportunity for us to experience the presence of God together, to pursue joy in God together. So verse 3 is not a throwaway statement, and verse 4 is not merely a warning against idolatry, although that is part of it. But God is showing us how to shape our present life together in our pursuit of God. What a precious truth. It's a precious truth that causes us to ask, do I prioritize? Does Sean Powers prioritize his time to be with the saints? A fourth truth declared by David is that the Lord gives him counsel. And in verse 7, David highlights how the counsel of the Lord instructs his heart. Verse 7, David says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. So, we've got to ask the question how did the Lord instruct David? Answer the Bible counseled and instructed David's heart. Aside from his personal experience with God, David was a man in love, specifically with the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, these books to David reveal God's constant faithfulness to his covenant people. Surely, if God, parted the Red Sea, sent manna from heaven, brought water out of a rock, God is going to continue to care for his covenant people. And remember, David, like I've said, is going through trials, struggles, hardships, God is faithful. And so David allows God's word to counsel him, to instruct him, to remind him of God's faithfulness. So here's the truth statement from verse 7. The way God counsels and instructs us is through this book, the Bible. We need this in our head, and we need to get the truths in this book down into our heart because it's in this book where we read about the faithfulness of God. God has spoken and continues to speak to us through this book, and it's essential to our life. It gives us counsel. It instructs our heart when we lay down at night. The final truth of God for our present life, which I want to highlight, is from verse 9. Therefore, my heart is glad my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. The word therefore in verse 9 is a response to everything that was said between verses 1 and 8. God is my refuge, verse 1. There is no good apart from God, verse 2. The Lord is my chosen portion and cup, which I didn't expound upon because of time, but that was verse 5. The Lord counsels and instructs me, verse 7. Therefore, David says, I am glad and my whole being rejoices and I shall dwell secure because of God. What we have here is truth about God leading to more truth about God. And David is honing in on how truths affect his heart. How truth affects his entire being. So we think of truth. We think of stuff that's in our head. But David knows he needs it in here as well. In a blog post by um, Ray Ortlund Jr. he, He made a case for a renewal of a study of the heart. Basically a theology of the heart. The passage of scripture he used to jump, jump out of and into the water of a theology of a heart was Psalm 1611, which we'll get to in a moment. But he very well could have used verse 9. He makes an excellent case, and I agree with his conclusion. It's true, and he says this in his blog post, it's true that post-enlightenment Western Christians, so all of us, most of us, I think, have excelled at a theology of the mind, but we have lacked in our study on the heart. We think well about God, but do our affections match our thoughts? Ortland cites Jonathan Edwards, perhaps one of the greatest American theologians. He cites him several times, but here's just one brief quote from Edwards. True religion consists in a great measure in vigorous and lively acting of the inclination and will of the soul or the fervent exercise of the heart. Now this statement from Edwards is a bit jumbled to our ears and eyes, but what Edwards is suggesting is that a heart on fire for God, I'll put it that way, is part of our experience with God. What Orland is not suggesting, and what I'm not suggesting, is that you need to be that guy or gal raising your hand during worship. God isn't as concerned about your display of affections being the same as everyone else. He he is concerned about the display of affections in your heart. If that emotion of your heart comes to display with your body, then so be it. I'm a hand raiser. If you've been around me, you're going to get hit. I'm a hand raiser. I know, but not everyone is. This is This is what I know to be true. God is after your heart. He wants to stir the affections in your heart for him. And he gives you all the grace that you need to be able to do so. My wife has learned. It's worship. Take two steps, large steps over, so you don't get hit. But I don't, not, not everyone's like that. I get that. It's like I tell our youth all the time God is after your heart. Let's stir affections right, right here. But I know from experience, and like many of you also know, there are seasons when our heart seems to lack affection for God. I know that. I've been there. So, what does Pastor Sean say to himself and everyone here in those moments? When affections just seem to, for God, just are just waning. When we lack affection for God, I'll say this. And I'll take my cues from Psalm 16. Remedies for your lack of affections for God can begin with a plea to God for affections. You cry out to him, God, stir me, send more of your spirit, help me. It's what we were saying earlier, we need to be, we're needy and we're beggars for more of you, God. We plead to God, stir affections in my heart. Line up what I know to be true here in my head with what, what I want to believe right here as well. Teach my heart, instruct me. We, we cry out. You do what David did in verse 1. We can also do what David did as we preach truth to ourselves. We, we preach truth about God to ourselves. We get his word in front of our eyes and we lean into relationships in the church. The temptation when affections are waning, is to pull away. How do I know? Because I've done that before. We gotta lean in. We read of all the remedies that we need in Psalm 16. God desires for your affection to be stirred this morning for Him. We should want to think and feel God's joy and pleasure for us this morning as well. So as we cry out to God, God gives the grace to say, Here's the joy. Pleasures forevermore for you, my son, and my daughter. Beyond the mind and heart, verse nine tells tells us of another way to think about our our affections to God. It says that as a result of declaring truth about God, the whole being rejoices. What does that mean? The book of Thessalonians says something similar. It's at the end of this letter, Paul affirms a benediction to the church, and he says this. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. That word in the Greek means fully, completely, entirely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So did you hear that? God does not view you as individuals with different compartments, but it's whole being. So, so God is at work in every aspect of your being. So as this truth pertains to Psalm 16, we know that when we get to the mountain peak, verse 11, it's not merely this intellectual ascent. It's not a, merely an emotional ascent, but God's desire for our entire be, being to experience the fullness of joy and his pleasures forevermore. So while I was writing this point in the sermon, I had this passing thought of what does it look like to experience something with our entire being? And so my, my thoughts go to sports all the time. Um, so no different here. So growing up, I played various sports, football, basketball, baseball, track and field. I, I would not go as far to say I was an athlete, but I enjoyed competition. If I had a ball, I played. I found value in throwing my entire being In the pursuit of winning, because I enjoyed sports so much, I naturally enjoyed watching sports. And there was one athlete I enjoyed watching more than any other athlete growing up. Michael Jordan. I'm serious. Awesome to watch. Loved it. Now, there are various reasons why a person enjoys watching one athlete over another, but the reason why I loved watching Michael Jordan play basketball for the Chicago Bulls is because he always played with his entire being. Yes, he was a great athlete, but basketball was and is full of great athletes. What, what Michael Jordan excelled at is that he threw his entire being in the pursuit of winning at the game he loved. If you've ever watched Jordan play, you probably know what I'm talking about. There was never a portion of his life or his game where he wasn't engaged. His mind, his heart, his emotions were all in from the moment of tip-off to the final buzzer, which usually culminated in him holding a championship trophy. so I ask myself and all of us here what would it be like for our entire being to rejoice because of who God is to go all in not give God just little portions of our life but our whole being to throw ourselves to the Lord and rejoice because of who he is and all the truth we've been talking about in Psalm 16 how would that change the way you live So at this point, you may have noticed a pattern on our way up. At the end of each point, I've been asking probing questions. And so I've been asking the Holy Spirit to apply answers to our heart and stir affections. So I've gone on for a while about the truths of God that impact our present. I'm not going to change the lens we're looking out of for a moment and pull out a lens that speaks to the truth of God that impacts our future. Here are two important verses about God and our future with God. Here are verses six, let me go back to verse six and I'll go to verse 10. David says, the lions have fallen for me in pleasant places. You hear that, he's just so sure of God's goodness to him, you hear that? Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. And now go to verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. From these two verses, there is a thought in David's mind that his earthly life is not the end, but only the beginning. The words beautiful inheritance, verse 6, are used. Perhaps more literally, it can be said that David has a beautiful heritage, past, present, and future. Some argue that inheritance or heritage refers to the promised land given to Israel by God. And while it surely is possible that David is reflective of God's faithfulness to give Israel the promised land. I don't think that's what David means here. After all, this psalm was written after the land had been given to Israel. David is thinking eternally. David knows that his inheritance is ultimately the Lord himself. David longs to be in the presence of the Lord. He's not naive of his mortal life. And if there is any doubt about his inheritance, verse 10 affirms his eternal perspective. In some of your Bibles, this psalm, at the top of the psalm, it'll say, for you have not abandoned my soul to Sheol. They've taken that verse and placed it as the heading of the psalm. And this is a precious promise for any follower of God. Sheol in Hebrew Means grave, or I think more cool sounding, abode of the dead. Sounds ominous. Abode of the dead. It was assumed by many during David's time that all people and animals went to the same place after death and to the grave. But here David is saying, No. God will not abandon his people, not in this life or the next. Even more, God will give them a beautiful inheritance. God gives his people himself. Again, just imagine how our lives would be different if we thought eternally, if we kept that in front of us. God will not abandon my soul to Sheol. I am his and he is mine. Not only right now, but eternally. So i that shape. Marriages, parenting, relating to one another. How does that shape how we view evangelism? How does that shape ministries within the church? Again, just asking questions and asking God to probe and speak to our hearts. In addition to personal application from verses 6 and 10, there is a prophetic reference with verse 10 and moving into verse 11. So, the Apostle Peter, in his Pentecost sermon from Acts 2, uses these verses to affirm the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, I'm going to read that. Here it is. Peter says this in his his beautiful sermon. He quotes Psalm 16 For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, Sheol Hades, quote from Hebrew to Greek, or you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For you have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now, that, again, that was a quote from Psalm 16. But I want to continue to read Peter's exegesis of Psalm 16. He continues in the next verse. Brothers, I say this to you with confidence that the patriarch, David, that he both died and was buried and his tomb, is with us today. Being, therefore, a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw, David foresaw, and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades. He, 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 nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. And of all that, we are witnesses, Peter says. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received from your Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. This is stunning. The the entire time we've been reading about what it looks like to be in the presence of God, we've been allowing truth statements about God from Psalm 16 to reveal to us what it means to be in his presence. And now we see that the resurrection of Jesus Christ made it possible for David and for us to be in God's presence. It's his resurrection. And in God's good plan and kindness, he sent the promised Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is poured out on God's people so that they can see and hear the glorious truths of the gospel from Psalm 16. So, if all this is true... I do have a question I had to clear up in my own head. If a part of verse eleven is about how Jesus is about Jesus, how can we apply this truth to our lives? Here's the peak of the mountain one more time. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there's fullness of joy, and at your right hand, pleasures forevermore. All the truths spoken about in verses 1 to 10 lead us here. The reason why David is able to apply verse 11 to himself and speak prophetically about Jesus is because Jesus is the confirmation of verse 11 for David's life. In my mind, it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ that makes verse 11 a reality. What is the fullness of joy in the presence of God without Jesus? What are eternal pleasures without the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And if you're tracking with me, you will not be surprised to hear me say the whole Bible is Christian scripture. Every word in the Bible points to Jesus. Therefore, we can read verse 11 like this Jesus, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. In Jesus, at your right hand, are pleasures forevermore. We get to the mountain peak, what do we find? We find Christ. All these truths that I just preached up the mountain are empty without Jesus. It, 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 if you're confused about your path of life this morning, that first part of verse 11, if you're confused about what that path is, you can turn to Jesus. If your joy is waning, you can turn to Jesus. If you want to experience true, lasting pleasure, you can turn to Jesus. And the way to turn to Jesus is to repent and confess of sin and then run into his loving arms. They are wide open for you. And then you will find yourself in no greater place the presence of God. you will know and experience fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. I wanna end where I began. I think this was confirmed from the microphone, like I said. It's my sense that God wants to use this psalm to strengthen weary saints, to give to give hope to those in the midst of trials, to awaken Christians from mundane and complacent Christianity. If you find yourself in any of these categories, God wants to stir your affections for Him this morning. He wants to pour out His grace upon you. And the way forward is verse 1, Psalm 16. Call out to God. Let's begin there. Call out to God. And after that, make your way up the mountain. Preach truth to yourself. Lean into the relationships in the church. Find your ultimate source of joy and pleasure in your Savior, Jesus.